Hey everyone, this is Ann Greeny, and welcome to Capital Connections. In this podcast, we will talk to successful investors and entrepreneurs about the state of their industry and how their network influenced their success. This podcast was brought to you by Affinity. Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to key decision makers and auto-populating their pipelines to increase deal flow. Affinity's patented technology structures and analyzes millions of data points across emails, calendar, and third-party sources to offer you the tools you need to discover untapped opportunities. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. To learn more, visit us at affinity.co. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. I am super excited about our guest today. He is the founding and managing partner at Advanced Venture Partners. He has over 20 years experience as an investor in small and medium-sized growth companies in technology, media, and the communication sector. Prior to co-founding AVP, he was the managing director at TPG Growth, uh, where he led the firm's technology investing efforts. Before TPG, he was a partner at Francisco Partners and began his career at Summit Partners. Please join me in welcoming David Ibanali. David, thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. So you started your career at Summit Partners. What made you decide to go there? Was you know I know you were at Stanford prior. Uh, did anyone encourage you along the way? So I, um, uh, I'm one of lots of people from Stanford who do uh, a co-terminal master's program. So I, I actually was at Stanford for five years. I did a master's in economic and international economic development. Um, and it's something that sort of, uh, my parents are both from, uh, from developing countries. I found it, I, I lived in Nigeria as a kid. So I found that interesting as a academic pursuit. And so I spent a year studying development. Um, and during that year, I lived with a friend of mine who worked for this firm called Summit Partners. And I knew what banking was, I knew what the consulting was, and I, but I, I had no idea what venture capital was. And over the course of that master's year, I spent a lot of time with him and the guys he worked with. And so fast forward, I spent a couple of years at Morgan Stanley uh, doing the investment banking analyst program thing. And um, at the end of it, it was the beginning of the wave where everyone went out of those programs into private equity. And so as I did what I did at Morgan Stanley, I started realizing that I was living with a guy who was doing what I wanted to do a couple of years later. And so uh, as I started doing recruiting for, uh, for private equity firms, I bumped into one of the partners at Summit. And um, uh, Greg Avis, who ran, who was one of the, the early partners there and was, uh, I, I ran into him at the grocery store and I, we talked about what I was up to. And he said, well, why, why haven't you talked to us? And I said, well, I, I didn't know you hired people out of investment banks. I thought, you know, they had historically hired people out of colleges to be sort of the sourcing engine of the firm. And so he said, no, come in. And like, I, I'm not kidding. I went in on a Tuesday. I spent six hours talking to people. I got an offer at the end of the day. I accepted the offer. And that was my, but the beginning of my career in, in private equity. And they, they, I, I knew all the guys already. And I, I liked all the guys already. And I think 
it's one of those places it's one of this is still a a, a craft sort of artisan industry and so um working with people you love who you who, who love you and who mentor you and bring you along is sort of what you need to look for and i i got that immediately so it was great Awesome. And then from, from Summit, you landed at Francisco Partners for eight years, and then uh, you became the managing director at TPG Growth uh, in 2008. I know you were leading the technology practice there. Um, that was only a year after TPG Growth was, fa was founded. What were some of the biggest changes that were happening in technology at that time? So... Um... Uh, everything changed during that time. So, so um, I got to Francisco. Uh, Francisco, one of the founding partners of Francisco, was one of the guys I worked with at Summit. And so, um, I I joined in 1999 before they had a fund while I was still in business school, and I worked out of their they 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 borrowed office space from Sequoia Capital, who was a big early investor, and um, and helped helped start the firm. And um, in 2000 to 2002, I'd say we, we spent a lot of time, as did there are one or two other tech-focused private equity firms that were doing larger scale structured deals. And we spent a lot of time educating banks and financing sources and lenders that, uh, about how, how it could work. Uh, you know, at the time, uh, the, if you were a lender, you cared a lot about assets. People didn't talk about recurring revenue then. People talked about asset bases. And, and so to do a financing at the time, it really was about sort of you know, semiconductor businesses that they, with, with big asset bases or contract manufacturers with big asset bases. And, and it was only during the beginning 2000, 2001, that lenders started waking up to the fact that you know, what they cared about was this sort of underlying value generating cash. And it didn't really matter if there's an asset base there um, or in the case of the software businesses, um, the recurring revenue bases. And so that, um, that began and then very quickly we had 2001 and the market sort of shut down. And some folks continued to invest and made a ton of money by buying things cheap after 2001 sort of bubble burst. And a lot of you know, their folks you know, at Francisco, we were very focused on portfolio and making sure we didn't have things uh, turn upside down. And so um, over the course of the rebuild from that, two things happened. Uh, there are a bunch of people who got washed out in 2001 and said they'd never do tech again because they sort of dabbled in the cable business, they dabbled in, they dabbled in, in comm equipment, and, and a lot of those businesses disappeared. And uh, you know, fast forward 20 years, we've got a lot of the people who said they would never come back again, who are just as invested now, plus new people, plus uh, sort of new strategies in tech. And, um, and there's been a whole wave of, of hedge funds who now invest in, in sort of uh, private tech companies. And so you've got uh, the whole ecosystem has evolved tremendously over that sort of 20 years since I joined Francisco back in, in 2000. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, a lot was happening in that in that span of time um, between like the the bubble burst and then heading into uh, you know obviously the recession as well. Um, so in 2014, you became founding partner at Advanced Venture Partners, um, which is an investment firm built on the partnership with uh, 
you know, the powerhouse advanced, which owns Condé, uh, Condé Nast, and is also uh, what I recently learned, largest shareholder in Charter, Discovery, and Reddit. Um, what made that that opportunity at AVP enticing to you? Um, so I, uh, I'm one of a bunch of people who are sort of summit um, late '90s alumni who have built a firm that, in some way, shape, or form, is doing what we were doing then. And um, so I, I left Francisco, uh, went to run TPG Growth Tech Fund, uh, left that to raise my own fund. And it's like, it's always sort of a random walk. What I ended up doing is not what I started out trying to do, but um, along the way met Advance and the Newhouse family. And, um, and two things happened to line up quite well. One was that um, they have, a, when I met them, they'd already spent five, six years investing in tech companies on a sort of idiosyncratic, opportunistic basis. There was, uh, there, there wasn't a big professional team of veteran investors doing it. But if you looked at what they'd already done, it, it was, it could have been a small venture fund. They, they had 150 plus million dollars of value uh, of, of dollars invested and probably half a billion dollars of value on paper in what they built. And, um, and they wanted to professionalize it. And so uh, they were originally going to be an anchor in what would have been a, a typical institutional fund. But over the year, we worked together to start fundraising and sort of build a firm. Uh, it became very clear to them that, that one, we could do what we said we could do. And then two, that um, it made more sense to have it be something they owned than have it be something they were a passive investor in. And so uh, we're, a, we're basically a sole LP fund. You know, the, the partners in the fund have a lot of our net worth tied up in it. Um, but it, it was an evolution from the idea of them being an anchor investor that has turned into them being uh, it's basically the, the sole LP in an evergreen fund. And we've been, uh, we've been successful in managing the, that first 150 they invested to some great exits. And there's, uh, you know, we've, we've, that's been a, uh, uh, if it were compared to funds, it's vintage. Uh, would be a, a top quartile, top decile performer. Um, and we, we think we're replicating that in the next, we've invested about another $300 million since then. And, uh, and, and hopefully, a knock on wood, we've, we've got some winners and we've got some things that we need to work on, but we, we think we're proving out the thesis that um, we can take um, long-term patient family capital and generate great returns with it in a way that's a little bit different than than typical venture funds, but is is very much designed like a typical venture fund. And that's so interesting that even prior to them building out, um, you know, the venture capabilities, they were already doing some really strategic investments because, yeah, as uh, you know, I came from StumbleUpon, it's been a bumpy road in the media world. Yeah. And so Reddit being such a savvy investment um, that early on. And so it makes a lot of sense of why they, they wanted to get more into it. And so with your investment thesis at uh, AVP, how much are you looking at kind of alleviating some of those problems that um, media companies and media 
you know, conglomerates are, are facing um, in this kind of new wave of media? Um, I would like to say we spend, uh, we, we don't spend a lot of time on it. I'd like to say we spend more time on it. We, we are, um, we, we've built something that I think is really difficult to do as a venture fund tied to a corporate entity. And that is we built something independent. And so our, our, our sole purpose is to generate returns for the Newhouse family. Um, the same way it would be if I were at Sequoia, you know, develop, generating returns for the Ford Foundation, whoever their LPs are. And they think about us as another way to monetize the IP that they have in having built these businesses and operated them for, it's now 102 years. And it, it allows us to not have um, sort of not have a, 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 um, an investment strategy that is fettered by the need to get strategic approval from people who um, may often be the ones at the uh, being disrupted by the things we're investing in. And we've done that. We've invested in things that are sort of disruptive to, to advances portfolio companies. Um, but the way I tend to think about it is we, you know, they have about a billion dollars of IT spend across those businesses that they that they own every year. We get to see into that and see where um, where that spend is going, what's being dislocated, what's being employed. Um, we occasionally explore media opportunities, but we we generally aren't uh, aren't in, they they have more than enough exposure to ad supported media, and so we're that sort of diversification for them. Um, and if you look at what they've done, they are um, sort of, you know, Buffett in mentality. They buy, own, operate forever. Like they, like the advance is a way for them to sort of build, generate, and pass on value generation to generation. Um, and so it's extremely inefficient to invest money, build something, sell it, pay taxes, reinvest those dollars, and then try to give that to somebody. And so the way they have passed value from generation to generation, and they're now it's now the fourth generation of family members growing up in the business, um, is by them owning the business. And so uh, we, it's funny, uh, it's funny to say that uh, like a venture strategy can be a liquid strategy, but relative to buy and hold forever, um, we're a liquid strategy because we we tend to think about five to ten year hold the increments and. Um, and that's that's really short relative to forever. Um, there are still it, it began as a newspaper business, and there are still newspaper businesses that they own and operate. And um, and that evolution, we're sort of part of or a branch of that evolution uh, because they've been quite willing to recognize when things are when the wind is in their face and sort of tack to places where they they have. The, the, the knowledge base from what they were just sailing in, but where they have tailwind rather than headwind. Well, you talked a lot about patient capital. Um, at AVP, what is your current investment hold time? You said around five years. And how many portfolios are you holding? Like, how do you think about this patient capital? So um, the, the, the biggest advantage of having the LP base that we have is that we can be tremendously flexible. Um, we, we don't, it, it, it's hard to raise funds from LPs who want you to fit in boxes. And so uh, we don't really fit in a box. We are, 
Um, we're stage agnostic. We, we know what we're good at. There are places we don't really dabble, but we're sort of stage agnostic, meaning we can invest in, we, we've invested in companies that were um, just beginning to generate revenue. And we've invested in businesses that were already generating $50 million plus of revenue. Um, we, we invest sort of uh, about half our portfolios, consumer, half our portfolios, enterprise. Over time, those are they're, they're places where the, the circles are starting to become a Venn diagram. But um, we, what we look for from a stage standpoint is, is sort of proof of concept, proof of economics, proof that, uh, that, the, that there's sort of product market fit. And we want to be the capital that helps that scale from there. Sometimes that for us is a, that can be a series A investment in, in sort of the nomenclature that people use, but it can often not happen until a series C or series D. Um, uh, I go back to one, one of the things I love is finding companies that have been bootstrapped and not raised capital, but have gotten to a place where that product market fit and the revenue model or the unit economics are, are proven. And that's when we're, we're helping them scale. And then because of, again, because of that flexibility, we tend to think about the world in you know, our whole periods are sort of five to 10 years, but depending on the stage at which we invest, it could be a five year and it could be a 15 year. Um, and we, we've, um, on the, we occasionally make um, earlier stage investments than our mandate would, would normally dictate. And the reason we do that is because it's something we thematically believe in, a management team we love, and we'll participate in a Series A or Series B, even if what we talked about just now isn't true yet. And that investment will allow us to sort of diligence the company as an investor rather than from the outside. And then further on down the road, we will preemptively lead whatever round it is that makes sense for us. So we've done that three or four times now and it's ended up working out quite well. And on the other end, we've had, uh, we, we wrote a $75 million term sheet last year for an investment in a company we've tracked for four or five years. And uh, we, we, ended up, we ended up getting priced out of it, but um, we have the ability to be a, a $75 million check writer if we need to be. Um, we, um, I'd say that the that flexibility or that sort of the way we think about horizon typically means we're probably the longest duration investor in the boardroom, and we because we do we don't have there's no incentive for us to sort of get our capital back to go redeploy it. We don't need to prove to people that the fund works. And, and so we don't have a, a sort of a typical fundraising cycle. And, and therefore we can, you know, when, uh, when folks start thinking about exit and it feels premature to a CEO or founder, we can take, we can take the contra, we can take the other side and we can back them. And, what they, and, and it may mean um, we, we're just a, a settling influence in the boardroom discussion. And it could in the end mean we're buying other people out of something we believe in and we're, we're going on with the management team and owners who, who want to be long duration. Um, 
And then again, so some of these earlier stage companies, just by virtue of when we come in, it's not going to be a three to five year hold. It's it, in, in order to get to where they want to be, in order to build a business at scale and do it brick by brick and do it in a way that's capital efficient rather than pouring a bunch of gas on a spark, hoping it, it sort of flies. Like I, I, you know, we, we, we think about duration on an independent basis for each company. Interesting. And are there any lessons that you learned early in your career, obviously working at some really, really fantastic private equity firms? Um, any of the lessons that you learned early on then um, that translate into how you invest today? Yeah, like I think you, um, what I, uh, you're sort of always a product of where, where you come from. And so like uh, back to the thing I said about like the alumni from Summit from that generation who have gone and started companies. I think we, uh, you know, the types of businesses I'm drawn to are driven by that. Um, and so I don't know if it's lessened as much as sort of what it is I like and what it is I, what it is I don't like. In, in a business where, you know, we look at thousands of companies every year, um, it's, almost, uh, it's almost more important what you don't do than it is what you do. Uh, it's, it's really important. Don't get me wrong. It's really important what you do. But um, I think, you know, being able to like having a filter um, and, and people's filters are always different, but uh, the summit experience sort of affected my filter and the kind of businesses I like. Um, and what's funny is Francisco added something to that equation for me, because at, at, the, at the time in the first couple, you know, the first decade of Francisco, one of the mantras was this idea of uh, uh, what we referred to as uh, uh, complexity arbitrage, and it sounds really it's a, like it's a, it, it sounds ba like it basically is how do I buy things that are complex because people don't want to take the time to understand them and make them really simple so that people can. And some of that's about the capital structure and where the company came from. So at Francisco, we did lots of sort of corporate carve-outs of non-core businesses. Um, but that same philosophy, I, I still think about things that way. I, I'm not 100% um, tied to um, growth rate. Uh, I think unit economics matter, business economics matter, market dynamics matter, competitive moats matter. And so for example, in, in our consumer business, um, you know, about half of the dollars we've invested have been in businesses that are B2C or B2B2C. And almost all of them, we don't, we don't, we don't believe in or don't get excited about brands. Brands are hard to build, hard to scale, hard to sell, hard to defend. Almost all of our consumer-focused businesses have a really deep tech moat around them. And we look for that. That's one of those things. And it's sort of both Summit and, and Francisco, but we tend to look for businesses that have, even in consumer, that have a real defensible position. And so, for example, um, our investment, we have a, a, we're large shareholders in a business called Curology, which is a direct-to-consumer skincare business. And they've sort of replaced um, and, and been better at solutions for acne than the sort of proactive Oxy, Clearasil products, which are all over-the-counter products, and they're great. But what, what they've done is they've created, it's a telemedicine business where 
um, a group of doctors in a doctor's center with nurse practitioners and assistants are, are going through the same thing that would happen if you went into a dermatologist's office. But because it's done by telemedicine, it's, um, there's a great access story. There are folks who can't get care, who can get care, who can't get care easily, can get care easily. And it's a great user experience. And for the founder, would tell you that when he was a dermatologist practicing in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and, um, and he would tell you that for like 75% of the patients he saw, when they walked in the office, he knew what the problem was. And then it was about sort of dialing in the right solution. And so you would need, and, and then by the way, you spend the next 20 minutes of the appointment doing things that are more rote or that are more formulaic. Not really, it, it isn't really about patient care. It may be about helping patients get comfortable with the care, but it, it sort of feel, it, it, to him, it felt like it was, it, he, he had a five week waiting list for people to get in to see him. People would drive three hours to get to, to Albuquerque. To, it, and it just, it seemed like a, a poor customer experience. And so they used tech to solve that. And then on the back end have built um, now two compounding pharmacies. So when you, but when you are prescribed the med, they then build, they, they create the, whatever the solution is going to be that you're using and, um, and then deliver it to you in a, in a you know, beautiful sort of unpackaging experience um, package that um, is custom, that is customized for you. And it's a wonderful sort of user experience. And so um, it's not just a brand, there is a telemedicine practice under it. There is this compounding pharmacy. In both cases, they're, uh, they're registered, certified, licensed in all 50 states. That's, those things all are real barriers. And so we, we look for that in all of the consumer businesses we invest in. And we're yeah, like, you know, enterprise businesses are sort of that to begin with. So we, we are, it's not as unique a calling card in enterprise tech. Um, but, but we sort of, this is one of those ways in which there's a lot of similarity between what we look for on one side and what we look for on the other. So, and that's so interesting because, you know, and especially tele, you know, the teledoc and telemed is growing like crazy, especially now what's going on with the pandemic and like many things from work from home collaboration to, you know, just doing more takeout and delivery of groceries, we've all kind of just been pushed into the direction that everyone now needs to try it. I did something from, you know, calling up recently, just, you know, talking to a doctor and I'd never done that before, like through an app. And I was like, wow, this is so easy. Why, why would I ever try to like have to go in for little things anymore? So it's, it's such an interesting, you know, path to growth there for yeah. them. Yeah, we we are we we've, we've done that now in a couple of different. We we really like um, parts of the digital health ecosystem where I describe it as capital digital small health, like it like the dermatology for again for seventy five percent or something like pick the pick the 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 portion of the market that is really about relatively simple problems. You don't need you, know, you don't need the sledgehammer to kill the fly. And the same thing exists in a bunch. There, there are markets that look like that, and we're pursuing a couple of other things in markets that have the same dynamic, where um, for, for, if you sort of triage the total patient pool, there's some big piece of it that doesn't need the level of care 
that they get, that the level of care that they get is the only level there is. And so virtual care, telemedicine, I, I think these are, um, you're going to see more of it because we've just gone through a five-month period now where we're all using it more than we have. And, and some of it's great. Like some of it is, uh, is, is lower cost, higher quality of service. So in, in, in dermatology, for example, um, uh, there is, it can be done asynchronously you, you, it, with, with photographs and, um, and charts and docs talking about it. You may actually get a better diagnosis rather you know, with that model than you would being rushed through an office where they're trying to see as many patients as they can because they need to provide access to as many people as they can. So, so ideally, quality of care goes up. Ideally, the, the triage problem allows you, so for example, in mental health, um, allows someone who's got a small acute problem, but like they, you know, uh, in, a, a bad experience in the office, a a breakup with a, a spouse or a boyfriend or like some of those things don't require um, uh, a a very high level intervention. People just want someone to talk to, and having having platforms that allow you to scale the solution to the the type of the problem will end up being a great cost thing for for providers. And so, mental health, um, addiction treatment. Uh, dermatology, they're like there are a bunch of these spaces where it can be done remotely and asynchronously, and uh, and still really work. Yeah, and you don't need to have all the doctors or nurses in one metropolitan area. They can be spread out. It, it seems also that you can digitize the whole process. Where I know in the uh, being friends with a number of doctors, there's a lot of still like analog, you know, yeah. and reporting. But if you can record the conversation, or I don't know what the the protocols are, but be able to really have that track record of the patient's yeah. uh, interactions. Yeah, if it's all if it's all done by text, there's no longer any. There's no there's no litigation around. You didn't tell me this. Either you did or you didn't. It's there. And so um, I, I agree with you. I think there are pieces of it. There, you know, there are firms who who uh, you know there are firms that have built uh, investment firms whose entire thesis is the things that were done on paper were going to help move to electronic. And I think that's one of those themes that is, oddly enough, you'd think that in 2020, it's all done. But there are, there are so many processes and industries that are still driven by manual and analog process uh, that is sort of brute force. Um, and, and so we see a lot of those still. We get excited about some of them, but some of them, Again, if you you can, it's not just about making the form electronic, but it's about sort of re-engineering the process for efficiency and sort of best you know best use of resources and best use of cost. And and so in kind of that vein, with the pandemic hitting, um, I know a lot of your portfolio companies um, are in different different areas. Everything from I know Urban Sitter, you're on the board, which is childcare to many of them, if not, I guess, all of them, um, forced to now work from home um, or ones, um, as you just mentioned, that now can probably scale in this environment. Um, what kind of advice are you giving your portfolio companies? Or are there anything specific that, you know, you were really pushing? I know our experience with you was 
being so helpful in in so many different ways. But what's what was what's your overall advice of like how you tackle these you know definite bumps within the road? Yeah, look, I think there's some common themes. I think um, unfortunately uh, this you know, this didn't affect everybody the same way. And when I say this, there's also a definition of what this is. So I'll, I'll go to that. Um, we one of the things we advised um, all of our portfolio companies to do is to think about. Um, and this is back in this is back in March, so we didn't quite know what was coming, but we, we sort of you look for you can see two things. One is there is an immediate crisis, and sort of solving for the crisis was really important. Um, but there was also um, we expected, and we're still sort of who knows what we see when it all plays out. But there is also what happens after the crisis, and we we thought that was recessionary environment. And so you had both the shock and then sort of what happens after things settle down. And for different companies, that can mean really different things because um, you know, we have companies that were really negatively affected by the shock, but because they are tech leaders, cost leaders, uh, because they have these dynamics that allow them to be to scale in a recessionary environment, once they got through the shock, they were, you know, if we got to a recession, they were going to be able to take share and they were going to be able to sort of be more aggressive and in some ways put their foot down. Um, on the other hand, we have folks who were beneficiaries of the shock and, and the recession was going to be the problem. And so sort of figuring out, and, and by the way, we have companies who we thought were one that ended up being the other. Um, and so what, what, we, what we told folks to do was prepare, uh, weather the shock so so get through the storm and then figure out where which where the wind was going to blow so figure out whether it was going to be a tailwind or, or or a headwind and um and that meant for us it meant understanding you know, getting to a cost structure where to the degree we entered a recession or to the degree that the shock was prolonged you didn't need to raise capital during the sort of worst time in the last 15 years to try and raise capital and and so for a lot of firms that meant um, that meant immediately putting the brake on spend and sort of trying to figure out how do we make the runway as long as possible and at the same time how do we do that without damaging the business the good news is I think as you get into five ten fifteen million dollars of revenue it you can't help but but get there, there's just always a little bit of bloat that comes with growth. And so whether you're you're firing at all cylinders or not, there's typically a, there's room to sort of revisit where we're spending and, and sort of tighten up. Um, there's a there's a like my I, like on a big I, I love Warren Buffett. I, I sort of love sort of the, the I refer I think I referred to him all once already and sort of thinking about advance. Um, you know, there's a great 2007 like you know, phrased in one of his letters that was basically like, it, 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 the, the quote was basically, um, only, it, it's, it's only when the tide goes out do you see who's swimming naked. And, and that, that, that happens across everything, right? And so um, the, the good news was we don't have a firm that sort of, we, there's no one in our portfolio who thinks they cut more than they needed to. 
And so if you, if, if you found out you were going to grow well post, you could take the dollars you saved and redeploy them against whatever the most acute problems are. And if um, you know, the, the, the crisis part of it was sort of an accelerant for what was going on in businesses already. And so if you were struggling, it made you struggle more. And if you had things sort of well bolted down and were growing, what we found is there, there are a lot of companies that took advantage of the crisis and were able to grow way faster than they thought they would because all of a sudden people are embracing tech um, to help them help them live at home, help them manage their childcare, help them manage, uh, help them communicate with their coworkers, help them manage their sales relationships, whatever it was, uh, folks found that the, the lack of interpersonal communication could be, uh, could be enhanced by, by tech. And so um, in the case of like, so Urban Sitter, for example, um, we've had a funny, we've had a funny thing happen there. Like, and that's one of these, that's a business that the different shocks have affected the business, you know, acutely, quickly, repeatedly. And so when, when work from home first started, it was, you know, people needed to figure out how to deal with childcare. And so that was a boon for the business. If, yeah, what came next was shelter in place and social distancing. And those things actually were bad for the business because you couldn't have a stranger or someone, even someone you use repeatedly come into your home unless you knew where they were spending their time. And, and in fact, Urban Sitter over the last couple of months has spent a bunch of time uh, coming up with a way to report on people's, uh, it, you, you can never certify that someone's clean, but you can, you can, uh, you can certify to, have, to, to having been tested. Uh, you can certify to behaviors. And so I think um, that platform has now figured out how to, to help parents deal with the uncertainty of having a stranger come into their home on another vector. Like they're already doing a great job of helping people socially prove that the, the, the sitter they were going to hire was safe. And now there's one more proof that they need to provide that you know, again, it's not going to be perfect, but it's it's uh, it's a um, it's a great way of providing additional information to a parent who needs the help. And yeah. then the thing that's been shocking there, by the way, not shocking, but been a pleasant surprise is that employers have all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, it, it, it's been thrown at them, but they kind of grok why having child care be a part of a benefits package makes a lot of sense. And so we've had um, tremendous success uh, like that we've never seen before in selling into enterprises as a corporate benefit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. It's, it's, it's until you have a, a number of calls where, you know, toddlers are running through the room and, uh, you know, people are just super stressed and, and obviously, you know, I think a lot of people just kind of grit, got gritty and, okay, we could do this for a couple months. And when the news comes that it's going to be a lot longer, yeah, you've got to find those solutions. And um, that's such an interesting strategy. Yeah. And going back to, you know, your, your advice around, you know, and it was super sound advice because we received it as well of kind of, all right, bear for, you know, we're going to hit a big pothole. It's going to be a bump. But as you transition your entire team to work from home, as you, you know, reduce some spending, 
um, and get lean and mean in, in this time, you turn out a couple months later, you know, at Affinity where our, you know, act, daily active user numbers or down numbers are spiking and um, all of a sudden we're, we're like settling in this wonderful place. And yeah, you need, you need that kind of sound advice because when you're in the midst of the fight, uh, it, it can be a little rough uh, to, yeah, to see the light at the end of the tunnel there. And, and I think um, there is some, you know, I've, it's really funny, you know, saying things like this. I, so this was, this was the third one of these I've lived through, right? Not, not one of these in that we haven't had a recession yet. Yeah, the, the economic data would tell you we're in one. People aren't behaving and the market isn't necessarily behaving like we're in one. But um, there, is, there is also, um, you know, particularly for young founders, it's also, it's also helpful to have someone say, hey, you know, this will end. This will, you know, we're going to get through this. And when we get through this, we'll be better for it. And, and I think the, the better for it part came, you know, sort of faster at Affinity than we, we had expected. And it's been wonderful. And we're prepared for it, and we have the resources to deploy against it, and um, and so it's been uh, it's a great example of uh, it's not it's never bad advice to tighten up. I recently wrote an article about how not all venture capital is equal. I mean, there's a big difference in finding someone who's going to support you through the bumps and someone who's gonna you know kick you aside uh, if your business still has this opportunity to thrive. Their marriages. They're married, yeah. right? And so you, you, uh, I think finding and, and the right, the right, the right partner isn't always the right partner for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's as much about um, the interpersonal and the board dynamics and, and, um, and how you listen and what you listen to as it is about sort of the capital. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so wanted to ask you a couple quick questions. Um, and just kind of like a quick fire. Uh, any mentors that helped guide your career along the way? Oh, absolutely. And, and I, like, again, I said this at the beginning, I think this is one of those businesses that is still an apprentice, apprenticeship, right? I think um, there are a couple of people. So uh, Walter Korshak and Greg Avis at Summit Partners, uh, Dupont John Deb at Francisco. Um, they're, they're, uh, even like Jim Coulter and David Bonderman at TPG, um, there, there, uh, there are a handful of people who um, I, uh, when I'm thinking about something, and Walter is one of these because Walter is really outspoken, um, whom I, I sort of listen to in my head when I'm looking at something because I, like, I start thinking about, okay, what would Walter ask about this? And, and so, and I find myself answering questions that, like, I, I will say out loud something that is an answer to a question. And one of my colleagues will look at me and say like, like they hadn't asked me a question. Um, and so uh, there are, and, and there are stylistically, they're all really different. And I think this business in the end is about, uh, there are all sorts of ways to be successful at it. And um, in the case, like I never worked side by side. Like I, I was at TPG way after David was was doing deals on a regular basis, but he was still he was still part of every investment committee meeting. And like the questions he asked were always the um, they 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 followed a line of thinking that was not my own. In the case of David, like he he would ask questions that followed a line of thinking 
that was not like I would think. And those are all those are more important than the people who think the way you do. And so, and like I say, like uh, you know, in, in building a partnership, and my partner Courtney is a, is very good at this for me. Um, being on the opposite side of whatever it is you're looking at, giving you a different perspective, allows you to sort of build a model of what the whole problem really looks like. And so, it's it's a great example of why diversity really matters in a boardroom or in a partnership because the different perspectives help you build a whole picture. And, and so uh, there are folks who have been mentors to me who were good at that latter part, who were good at being uh, good at, at either because of who they were and how they thought, or because they were really good at, 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 at taking the actions required, could go to the other side of whatever it is you're trying to build the model of and look at it from that direction. And so, um, uh, like I, I think I am, and and this is again, I, this is still an apprenticeship. The apprenticeship, what you learn, is um, the different approaches that different investors take to what they do, and I think you get good by incorporating a, a little bit of you know a little bit of Walter, a little bit of Jim, a little bit of Dupanjan, a little bit of David Stanton, like all these people that I've worked for. I'd like to believe. Part of me is the amalgam of those people, and part of me is the me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's an unpopular? That was not a quick fire. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fine. It's 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 totally flexible. Uh, what's an unpopular p- opinion that uh, has worked out for you that you have? Um, it's not a. Um, I'd be, like I'd be lying if I said I'm a total contrarian. I'm not a contrarian. I, like I so. Uh, I, I, I don't do what I just described the TPG founders do really well. Like I'm not good at being at, at thinking why when other people are thinking why not. Um, I, uh, where, where I have had a strong opinion that has been in the end proven right is it, honestly, I, I, I have not liked a lot of the last decade of venture. And this is your, it's coming from a guy who's like, I'm a, like I kind of joke, I'm a private equity guy who's, who's operating a venture strategy. Um, we, from the very beginning, so we from, uh, from 2014 when we started AVP, um, cared a lot about unit economics, cared a lot about um, whether, uh, whether we were, whether one of our companies was, buying customers for $3 and then sending them home with another. And so it was just a giant subsidy from venture capitalists to that customer having a great experience for a dollar because they were getting an experience that really should have been a $7 experience. Um, and so we, we passed on a lot of things that were, that we thought had bad unit economics. Like I, like I, the, the, the scooter businesses, for example, we we had bets on which would fail first, um, and so uh, I, uh, I I think as as the last uh, probably thirty months has 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 played out, you've heard a lot of of venture funds start talking about unit economics again. They weren't talking about unit economics sixty months ago. You know, five years ago it was how do we get growth and how do we get growth at any cost. And so there are, and there may be things we missed because of that, because the things that, that there are things that 
survived on subsidized dollars until they figured out a business model that worked. Um, it doesn't that that model doesn't work for us. And and part of it's how I'm wired and how my partner Courtney is wired. Some of it's about the capital we have because I, like I I don't I think if you are running a really efficient family a set of family businesses. Um, you you look at some of the things that got funded over the last 10 years and you scratch your head. And the good news is some of them, some of them ended up being, you know, you know, very, very big bullets that we missed, that that we that we dodged. And there are a handful that we didn't, and and they may, by the way, they still may play out to be less exciting businesses than people thought they were. They just they lived on venture dollars until they escaped. You know, they they hit escape velocity, but that's sort of we we're we we get more excited about capital efficient businesses and great unit economics and great user experiences and 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 really importantly like sort of great businesses. And there are a lot of I think there are a lot of venture funded businesses that aren't great businesses because of the amount of dollars in venture. Um, there there is a. Uh, there is more uh, there is more of a focus on sort of the multi-billion dollar sort of ridiculous outcomes than there used to be and less focus on um, building great businesses even if they're not tremendous right like and then part of the problem is that if I if I manage a billion dollar fund I need to have great returns to return the fund um, and maybe the answer is the fund got too big um, because you know, it used to be, and I'm still attracted to businesses that can be great outcomes if you sell them for half a billion dollars or businesses that can be great outcomes if you sell them for $600 million. That, that mentality um, doesn't exist as much anymore. And there are lots of good businesses that get passed because they don't have they don't they don't look like multi-billion dollar outcomes from the very beginning so true you you hear the you know i've talked to many people about the baseball analogy of a lot of ventures just swinging for the fences every single time and you know and more so in private equity it's like you can hit great you know doubles and triples even you know singles and other you know sectors of the business and and still come out on top um and yeah i think that your your comment before about just the fact that there's been this long-standing growth at any cost and it, it's time for it to be up and it's time for us to be um, much smarter about spending and leaner and meaner and figure out ways to grow without just having to deploy a ton of capital to do it. Yeah, like the early, and, and this is again, one of those summit things, but I was at summit for uh, like sort of three funds the last of which was a $600 million fund. So the end of a small fund, we invested a $300 million fund in the, the beginning of a, a much larger fund. And if you look back at Summit's track record, if that, what, what was important was actually, there were, I don't remember any zeros, right? They, they like you can, and if you don't have a lot of zeros, then you don't have, you don't need to have these massive outcomes to fill a bunch of holes before you generate returns and and carry um and so like it, it is the earlier stage you get the harder it is to do that i totally get that but um the you know in the stage we operate in um you know i'm i i'm really really dis i like 
no one no one likes zeros no one likes losing capital but i i am uh it's you know, i think we're focused on we're relatively low velocity we are um uh relatively concentrated and therefore try to minimize we, we try to generate great returns but minimize the zeros and the holes we have to fill in yeah that makes total sense um in you know any any books that you've been reading recently or any books that you recommend to the audience um so I'm, right now i'm reading a book called priceless um by uh by bill Moore, uh, bob, sorry, bob whitman um who was a uh an fbi um art detective and so like it was it's sort of about the the growth and uh the maturation of the art market and the billions of dollars of art theft and fraud that occurred as that market grew and then the folks who were specialists who understood how to be how to, how to be detectives but but really knew art well and so that's that's the current read um my uh I, I, like my uh my my best read in probably the last 10 years is a book i still talk about all the time it's a book called red note red notice by uh uh by bill browder who was a, it's a story of basically building a hedge fund in russia as um as putin rose to power and oh, wow. and uh he is still yeah, folks in, in the McGinsky Act, which is uh, sort of an international uh, an act by Congress to uh, uh, sort of to punish uh, wrongdoers in the human rights arena, um, has really like was was created by Browder and came out of his general counsel in Moscow being tortured and beaten to death in a jail because of sort of the things that bill was uncovering just by sort of being a hedge fund guy like he was he was uh you know that business early was really there's a lot of sort of fundamental research that required going out in the field and and doing sort of doing unique work and it's really around the work that bill did financially that that it's during that period and he sort of drove some of um the power that Putin accumulated by exposing some of the stuff that the oligarchs were doing or did to rise to power. So like, I, I could talk forever about it, but it's a great book um, and it's worth, it's worth checking out. Yeah, I'll have to add that to uh, the Affinity Book Club as well. I think a lot of people would uh, yeah. get a huge kick out of that. Um, uh, final question, any, any secret hobbies or, I mean, I know you're, you are a, you're a golfer and, um, you know, um, you used to play soccer, right? Is that is am I remembering that right? Or you still do? Or I still try. I'm not sure. I I, I don't see it's not really do. It's <laughs> um, so my my uh, I have since uh, since high school been a car guy, and I spend all my time and money and like and worked two jobs to have the money um, under the hood of cars in in high school. And I, I'm sort of trying to return to that now. So I have a project. I, I'm, I'm trying to track down uh, a, a late '60s Type Two VW bus to restore. Um, so that's, that's sort of the, the project I've got in mind right now, and it's sort of the, the hobby, the, the itch I haven't been able to scratch for a long time. 
Um, but like a, a friend of mine and I rebuilt an Austin Healy bug-eyed Sprite in high school. And that, that sort of turned on a bunch of, of lights for me. And it's really, it's something really different than what I spend my time doing. And so it's fun to be, uh, it's fun to be doing something that, um, it, I, I don't want to say I turn off when I'm doing it, but I, there aren't that many things I do that allow me that, that that require so much focus that I'm not focused on the things that stress me out about <laughs> around my portfolio and our company. And so um, it's fun to find those things. Oh, that's so cool. And then hopefully you can get uh, your family can go on a little road trip up north or something to that extent. Well, awesome. Thank you, David, so much for your time. Um, this has been you know truly a pleasure. Always great to talk with you. Um, thank you for joining us. And uh, I know we'll, we'll be talking soon. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by Affinity Senior Growth Manager, Faison Medi. Music was produced by Affinity's engineering manager, Rohan Sahai. This podcast was brought to you by Affinity. Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to decision makers and auto-populating pipelines to increase deal flow. Affinity's patented technology structures and analyzes millions of data points across emails, calendar, and third-party sources to offer you the tools you need to discover untapped opportunities. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. To learn more, visit us at affinity.co or email us at marketing at affinity.co. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.